I've got, you know, I've been working out like at a gym gym for a few months. So I've been using the barbell and everything. So mm-hmm. I've, I've built up my calluses again, but I've now got new blisters just from the paint roller. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I thought my hands were going to be spared, but no. You need and some was, some rawhide ranch hand uh, gloves that you paint in, you know, like the yeah. kind that the guys use when they're putting up barbed wire fence. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I need. Um, I do have the gloves that every dad has to like move wood in the fireplace. You know? Okay, yeah, yeah, Those, yeah. Those like yeah. gray kind of. It's like it's I, like a it's like a thicker gardening glove, like yeah, a glove mm-hmm. that your mom would wear in the garden, but it's got to look a little tougher for dad. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. The stitching's bigger. <laughs> yeah, it might be like a more masculine color. Like they'll put like a a neon orange line in there or something, you know. Oh well, we got the off off blue off red stripe pattern. There you go. That's that's a, that's a traditional one. That's a traditional. Yeah, one right exactly. There. Um, I was just like thinking that I need. I wish that I was like a a duo, like a painting duo or something. Because <laughs> like I can listen to podcasts all day, but man, it's just like need somebody to chop it up with. So a little bit, you know, and I don't want to bug the restaurant guy because he's busy with like all the construction stuff. And then the construction people are working on stuff. Then the kitchen staff that's cleaning out the kitchen is, um, you know, I'm sure like what they're doing is is way harder than what I'm doing. And they do it all the time, I'm sure. And so I don't think they're, um, you know, everybody's extremely nice, but I don't think they think the. The guy who's just gonna draw some fancy colors on the wall is at the same level. Oh yeah, you're you're, you're <laughs> you not know? one of them. Right, exactly. <laughs> Even though I talk a good game at the the paint counter <laughs> at Home Depot. <laughs> well, you've just realized the primary reason why entrepreneurs and small business owners everywhere hire their first employee. They're lonely. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, the I'm willing to pay these 941 quarterly taxes if I could just have someone to talk to. What's never ending to find the beginning that came before everything? Like kids with decoders discover the wonder in the to guess so the amount of square footage that i'm covering is around 425 square feet okay which is about the same size of what i did previously in this restaurant Mm -hmm. um except it's confined to two different rooms um but the it's a tatami room so it's like a private kind of dining area and tatami is like that kind of woven um not grass but like 
it's it's some kind of plant material that's like woven to and has like kind of some cushioning in it. It's like what you would traditionally like a traditional Japanese floor. You'd think. okay, okay. I know what you're talking about. And um, it's so it's like this private dining area, and the tables, you know, is kind of sunken into the floor. You stick your feet under and all that kind of stuff. But the walls have like a type of kind of wallpaper on them that I wanted to keep the texture because it's kind of like what you would imagine a tatami room having mm-hmm. as wall texture. But 425 square feet, one gallon typically covers 400 square feet. Um, I want you to guess how much paint it took to just do the base layer. To cover, cover the this, wallpaper? Yeah, that it's kind of this rough material that's a little scratchy. Hmm. Well, with the setup, I'm going to guess that it took t- at least twice as much per what they said. So two gallons for every 400 square feet. Buddy, I'm over four gallons already. <laughs> you just got a heavy hand. You got a heavy roller hand. <laughs> you know, I think it's what screwed me is the paint roller because, you know, the rollers that they have, the brushes... They have them for different wall thicknesses. Mm-hmm. And so I got the one for rougher surfaces. Mm-hmm. But then that's going to keep so much more paint inside of it. Yeah. That I don't know. I wonder if I screwed myself by getting down because then I needed to press even harder to get the paint off of the brush. But at, it at least went in the, you know, tiny kind of crevices. Yeah, it got, of it the got in there paper. in the texture. Yeah. Have you used one of those as seen on TV long uh, roller handle things where you put the tube in the handle and you slowly squeeze the or you put the paint in the handle tube and you slowly squeeze it out, you know, like a pneumatic press into the roller as you're going along the wall. So you don't have to have to re-dip and reapply and then you have two different thicknesses of the roller as you're going on versus when you put on and when you take it off. That's a that's a good idea. No, I didn't. They don't sell those in the store. Um, mm. I don't think I've ever seen one of those on TV. And I used to watch an infomercial or two. They might they might be on an end cap. You might it might be one of those things that's just like on an end cap in Home Depot, not actually in the aisle. Yeah, but it would be on an end cap by like the cabinets or something. Yeah, you know, yeah. people who are already dropping a few hundred dollars there, or maybe close to a thousand. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think we need to redesign the paint roller, um, itself. I, you're already going to be using two hands at some point, like pressing, Mm -hmm. holding it with two hands or whatever. Um, and the walls, the area I'm painting, the height is like six and a half feet. So it's not like I need it, an extension pole and it's not, I don't want to be dripping paint all over. So I also don't want to get one of those sticks just so I can stand farther back and like just kind of lean my whole body into yeah, it. Yeah, you just stand in the middle of the room and just slowly rotate around <laughs> as <Right>. you go. <laughs> yeah, so, but I think it needs to be two-handed. I think it needs to be like a like a chest press kind of like mm. double, double, uh, ooh, yeah, even two paint rollers on it so ah. that you're... Almost no, like a skateboard not. chassis. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I need to s- just dip my wheels in the paint. <laughs> just roll, roll in your skateboard <laughs> vertically yeah. along the wall until it fills out. This is my process. 
<laughs> You're just doing wall plants on your feet. have you thought about using one of the spray guns like uh when we got our house painted um after the tornado um because we had to have all the drywall redone and everything they used the uh guns they were basically just like uh the air spray guns like they do on the t-shirts you know at six flags but for a giant home or industrial application yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I I haven't ever used one of those, and I of course don't want to use spray paint because that's gonna reek, um, and I would probably pass out in these rooms, <laughs> uh, even wearing my respirator. So there's that, and then just the like using house paint with those sprayers it's it doesn't have vocs whenever it's just applied painted on mm-hmm. but somehow it does when aerosolized and um. i don't know just having so many other people in the restaurant while i'm doing it i just i don't i don't want to oh yeah when they would do the when they were doing our house they would do it room by room and they would seal off like the floors right. and the doors and everything with plastic and, you know, even still, there would be like little little spots like on the door handle where they didn't quite put enough paint or tape on it, you know, and it would yeah. have all the little speckles that would get stuck to it from the air aerosolized paint spray. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's one of those things I just I don't know when it comes to that kind of stuff like it's it's it is easier. That's the thing. I'll put my body through this torture because this is, <laughs> uh, you know, this is fun. I like to do it, you know. Uh, but it is hard. I don't know. Looking for an easier way to do it while also making sure that I'm suffering enough because I get to do this instead of becoming yeah, well, an accountant. To be you know? true, true, true art, you have to suffer. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's definitely. A yeah. If you thing. if you got like a real convenient, you know, paint sprayer and a real convenient, you know, stencil making system. Then you just have to put like broken glass in your shoes or something while you did it to really earn right. it. <laughs> yeah, I was. They sell these, um, like they're called. What were they called? Were they called? I can't remember. Like trim brushes or something. They're like these square brushes that have little bristles on them, and then they have at the at one side of it like little wheels. So that you are supposed to like just dip it in the paint, press it against the wall, and you can roll it along the, you know, the baseboards or the, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, But I just couldn't bring myself to get that because I, I'm, I'm also one of those people that I'm like, I don't think that's going to work as well as they say it's going to work. Well, especially when like those will have like the little instructional video or you could even like go on their YouTube page or whatever and they'll show you the little demonstration and the yeah. guys are always just like zip done look how easy that was right <laughs> right then, right and then you do it and it's just like extra excess paint running down the baseboard everywhere and you can't get it in a, in alignment and the wheel doesn't seem to stay on track yeah I I go through that with caulking, like whenever it's like time to recaulk the shower again, you know, because it only lasts a few years every time before you got to strip it all out and do it again. Um, 
And every time you like look at one of the videos with like the little cornering tools and all of this stuff to make it just real like you put the drip of caulk in there and then you just wipe it down with this little cornering tool and it looks perfect every time. And they just do it in like 10 seconds. And it's never happened like that for me. Not one, not one time. Yeah, I would imagine for that kind of thing, they have the the demo or whatever. It's not at a 90 degree angle. Like it's, it's more open or something for more of the tool to get in there. Yeah. They're giving you a, it's a camera trick to make you think it's a perfect corner, but it's really not. Yeah. 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 It's really just a flat surface. (laughs) It's really just CGI. Yeah. It's all just fake. (laughs) I spent $2 million on the infomercial. That's what they use all the image AI development for now is to give you trick commercials to make uh, home improvement applications seem way easier than they are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I want I, I want mean, a I want an AI generated Bob Via that just is carrying in like entire countertops to remodel a kitchen on like one finger and he just sets it down and it's done. <laughs> yeah, like, you I can do it too. Seen, <laughs> I haven't seen anybody doing AI for infomercials, so that's finally one avenue of meme that you can start making. You know? Yeah, yeah. Or that's where you have to go to if you still just want to do authentic human driven art not influenced by ai you just have to get into infomercials man i <clears throat> did i ever tell you that my mom went down the qvc rabbit hole for a few years you told us about her um mlm days but i don't know if that's yeah, this related was, this was pre mlm but i'm sure she picked up some pointers for that but yeah she she definitely got into the uh the infomercial QVC watching kind of stuff where we would just this and this is like, you know, obviously before Amazon, Amazon probably existed, but it's not like we were we didn't read in my house. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we weren't getting books and <laughs> you didn't have the 1987 World Book Encyclopedia. No, no, no. Uh, I, I would get books from going to Chick-fil-A <laughs> and okay, getting the kids okay. mail, you know. Nice. Um and then, uh, yeah, I would learn about David and Goliath or whatever they were trying to indoctrinate me with. Um, Did you yeah, ever get David, any secular Clifford the Red Dog books or anything like that that uh, snuck through? Yeah, I mean, at that time, my mom was the more secular one uh, than my dad. So that would, and this was probably after they were divorced. So yeah, I would, I was allowed to read Clifford the Big Red Dog. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> But yeah, she, the one, and so I'm saying like we would just get packages like every few days there'd be another delivery. And this is way before getting a delivery was like Mm -hmm. anything commonplace. Getting a delivery was like, what in the world? Like this is before you would even think people would steal it. (laughs) Right, right, right. Nobody's expecting deliveries being made. Um, Or you would get like a certified delivery yeah you have to like sign for it yeah yeah (laughs) um and so uh yeah the one that i remember there was like this uh hard-boiled egg like shell peeler kind of Mm, thing mm -hmm. very very natural qvc purchase yes have you ever seen it where you put the egg in there's like a tiny little needle thing that you are supposed to poke one end of the egg with then you put it inside of one of those air pumps that like comes with the walmart blow up pool okay like you know a foot pump kind of thing where it's just a 
Like it's it's a plastic accordion with a spring inside of yeah, it. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I'm very impressed with being able to describe what that was. Uh, <laughs> Manual so, air pump. I think everyone had to fill up a basketball at one point in the 1980s. But that's with or a, a hand bike pump. tire. Uh, no, back in the day, like the one those. where you had the two little foot the the little uh, foot pieces that would fold down, so it looked like a uh, what what was that called? The jumping stick thing that you used to jump on when you were a kid. Stick. Pogo stick. Yeah, looks like a yeah, pogo but stick, different. but it's an air pump. That's different than the than the no, just the accordion one. Oh, oh, like the little foot press one that would come with yes. your rocket launcher toy when you were a yes, kid that you would okay, jump yeah, on that's... and it shoot the rocket up in the air. Okay, I know. Yeah, what you're talking yeah, about. yeah. So it can It's one of those things. So you'd poke a hole in the egg. You would put it inside of this contraption and then put one of those accordion foot pump things over the top of it, and you were supposed to just slam it. <laughs> and the perfect hard-boiled egg would just pop out the bottom into your bowl. <laughs> uh, s- never crossed anyone's mind in the process of designing this or selling it or buying it that smashing an egg is not going to cause it to it just cleanly just it, it just separates that membrane of egg <laughs> egg to egg to boiled egg ratio. Yeah, yeah, it separated out the components quite well of the egg, sprayed across the entire kitchen counter. <laughs> Just the, the like, and, you know, I'm probably nine at this point or something, and, like, thinking, like, wow, this is, you know, a heart. I've spoken about how we didn't really have food. Like, TV dinners was, like, the thing that we ate. So a hard-boiled egg, that's that's good cooking. That's fantastic. Well, it was house. always, I mean, I was deemed it a very fancy thing yes because yes, it was whenever you would like uh read uh old books you know and they would have like the little um relief sketches inside of them you know you know it yeah. might be you might be reading about cardinal richelieu in the in the three musketeers and he would be like sitting there at his table and he'd have like those little silver chalice things that were just specifically made to set up hard-boiled egg in and then they'd have like all these specific little spoons that they would use to either crack the egg or just eat the inside of the egg out of the shell with it's like a very fancy fancy people thing like poor people didn't eat this yeah yeah god god bless he who could make a soft-boiled egg at that point in the 90s you know (laughs) (laughs) um and so just the imagination of how many hard-boiled eggs I'd be able to eat. This is genius. <laughs> you know, because making a hard-boiled egg back then, it was it was one of those <laughs> um, controversies in the house that it's like, are you going to just waste the egg on eating just the egg? Or are you going to save it uh, for the, you know, uh, Bisquick pancakes or whatever mm-hmm, we're going to mm-hmm, make? Mm-hmm. You are you going to deny the entire family <laughs> Sunday breakfast, <laughs> or are you going to uh, selfishly? You know, is the devil convincing you to eat a hard-boiled egg? <laughs> they're called deviled eggs, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, when you put mustard in them, right? Uh, <laughs> um, and so, I thought that that was going to be a game changer, and just the the immediate realization of how stupid the idea was, just seeing just yellow and white 
splattered across the counter. <laughs> Just like a beautiful metaphor. Yeah. I I never knew of an awesome way to peel hard boiled eggs. We oh, did I'm still the bad at it. We did like the method where you take it right out of the hot water and then you drop it in like a thing of ice water, you know, mm. to try to shrink up the newly boiled part on the inside and it would like that separation would cause the shell to peel away and then you could easily kind of like peel it off and like my sister was really good at it she could you know do it like all in one piece like she would peel it like all in one bit but I was always like taking little bitty microscopic chunks yes triangle by triangle (laughs) off every time yeah I still can't figure it out because like eggs especially boiled eggs are um common whenever you're having like ramen or something Mm -hmm. and we'll make that at home not often but you know every now and then so i i usually like to make you know a soft boiled egg or if i've got if the eggs are coming up on expiration and we got a few left then i'll turn them into like the the type the actual type of egg that you would have with ramen like an ajitama that's like marinated in kind of a soy sauce okay is that that's not where you separate the yolk from the egg and then you string out all the yolk pieces to make sort of those egg drop noodle type of things out of the yolk no i mean yeah no that's that would be different okay um and so uh like peeling eggs is something that i've i've just struggled and miho can do it no problem but like it's like whenever it's so sad to to take like be like okay we're having ramen tonight and then give Miho her egg and it's one of those like it looks like the surface of the Death Star like there's just caverns yeah yeah yeah, yeah. the outside of it just chunks taken out of it so it's the yeah. moon cratered it's like you didn't really want any of the white part anyway right. Yeah, you just peel is... it all the way around so it's just a yolk core, just a perfect circular <laughs> ball of yellow. He's like, "This is what you're after." <laughs> yeah, man, what an amazing like kitchen trick to to learn that you can use the shell to separate the egg yolk. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was blown away when I saw that. Did you did you ever know the the one where I learned it from making French toast? But like if you rub your fingers on the outside of the bread, that the starch or whatever will be just enough coating that you can just pick the yolk out of the of the mix. Oh, I'm huh? getting an amber alert. There's been a child abduction in Azel, Texas, guys. The victim is a 13-year-old white female, Aubrey Trainer. She was last seen wearing a black shirt with a Tupac on it. That's a weird way of saying that. With a, a Tupac, Tupac on it. <laughs> Tie-dye pants, white slides, wearing hair in a bun and glasses. She's She sounds like she's got style. The suspect is unknown. Where is Azel? That's country, isn't it? It's country northwest of here, maybe? I don't know. But quite far. Jerry? Isn't it? Is that the thing? Um, I know people were loving our egg talk. But yeah, we can... sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt interrupt the egg talk. But yeah, no, you could no. rub your fingers on a on the outside of a piece of bread, and then your hands can just pick up the yolk without. Oh, okay. And separate it out. I thought you rubbed your fingers on 
like bread crust and then and then like lassoed the egg yolk with with crust that <laughs> no, you no 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 you just you just get a little bit of that bread funk on your fingertips and i guess whatever the flour and starch mix that's still just residually there on a slice of bread is enough to coat your fingers so that you can just easily grab it mm. yeah well i mean i never touched a raw egg really as a kid because as I mentioned yesterday, thinking salmonella and E. coli were everywhere trying to attack me mm-hmm. was was a common belief. I mean, we were talking about that yesterday because that was just the jack, jack-in-the-box thing. Right. Yeah. I'd, I went through the thing when I was uh, like 11, 12, and 13 just because all the other kids, all the other dudes had like started really hitting puberty and they were way bigger than I was already in like uh, junior high baseball and stuff. I was still like four foot five. <laughs> and they're, all these other guys are huge compared to me all of a sudden. So I was, you know, doing the thing, waking up early in the morning. And I would put like uh, four raw eggs in the blender with some uh, oh, some different shake mix and crap. And then I'd go run around my cul-de-sac with, with weights in my hands. Try Jeez. to get... <laughs> like, it's like I'm getting left behind by all these guys I used to be better than and then they all hit their growth spurt way before I did and I'm just being left in the dust (laughs) I've got to do something yeah the kids who hit their growth spurt in middle school basketball were the bane of my existence because they it's not like they knew how to better play basketball they were just the sinner who was yeah yeah like and and lumbering where you were gonna catch an elbow in the face, yeah, because they didn't know how to turn smoothly. <laughs> yeah, our freshman basketball team, we didn't have anybody that was necessarily tall for basketball, but we had one guy who was like six three, and he had just got there like the summer before. Jeez, <laughs> and um, so he played center for us, but he wore like um actual converse all-star lows like that was his shoe that he thought was the most comfortable to play in and you know he he was the kind of guy who would he would run but somehow he would also always have two feet on the floor (laughs) while he was running yeah yeah (laughs) you know you know what i'm talking if you've seen this this type of guy you know exactly what i'm talking about (laughs) (laughs) but just because he was like the the tallest one it was just a whole lot of just soft lobs over the top of a bunch of five foot seven dudes trying to play zone defense and then he would just like bat the ball up at the rim like three or four times and maybe it would go in (laughs) it was not no technique didn't know which hand to use around the basket didn't know how to lay it off the glass in just a traditional layup line (laughs) we just told him to go stand under the basket (laughs) yeah man middle school basketball was such a bad time i'm not good at shooting at all um i'll play defense on you again Mm. i can punish my body (laughs) but it i i I just remember i was like inbounding the ball once i like the other team scored just grabbed the ball you know step outside and turn to pass it where the person should be and everybody was on the other side of the court (laughs) so i went to try to grab it and like stepped in bounds and grabbed it. Oh, great and then move. everybody's yeah. <laughs> of course, 
course, turnover, but then everybody's just like, why would you inbound it to yourself? I'm like, I didn't inbound it to myself. <laughs> you failed. <laughs> the, the greatest part of that seventh, eighth and ninth grade, well, in 10th grade too, that sort of bas- that four years of basketball was, I was, it was private school for me the whole time. And so you'd play a lot of private schools that were similar to yours, you know, like in my freshman and uh, sophomore class, there were only eight people in my grade (laughs) And, and six of them happened to be boys. So we could only get like four of the guys to play basketball, which means we were had like two homeschool kids that were on our team, too, that would just come up to do like extracurricular stuff at our school. And uh, we had like on the freshman and and sophomore team, we had a couple kids that were eighth graders that played up with us so we could fill out a team. Um, So most of the teams you would play would be like that, too. You know, carpet gyms, uh, you know, that were basically cafeterias with roll-in baskets and real low levels of competition. But you would also still be in the same, like, uh, competitive district as a couple really well-to-do private schools. Mm -hmm. And, like, they would have... A, a basic like pre NBA team of a bunch of kids who are just dunking. They're all six, seven or taller. You know, there's a reason why they go to this private school and it's probably just to play basketball types. And it was just, those, those are the most fun games. Cause you know, we would just be like, just not even doing our warmups. We're standing at half court, just watching them dunk in their layup line over and over again. We're just like, wow. That'd be so cool yeah. to do one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I we the uh, first Baptist Arlington is where I got my start at basketball, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was interesting because I think it was somewhat competitive, but of course, is like where they they either didn't keep score or like they didn't. There was no like records or something, but of course the parents kept mm. all of that information. Um, and I wasn't great. I was like the, <laughs> I was exactly like the the great. Uh, my favorite quote from the great Dan Binion. Um, oh, he's pretty good with the left. Oh, oh, he can only go left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's that's the only hand he knows how to use. Yeah, <laughs> and so. Uh, I would get pinned on the right pretty often, but uh, my go-to move was just throw it against their foot so it went out of yeah. bounds. <laughs> Which is, it's legal. I don't think that's a, a sportsman-like kind of move. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was that would happen at least three times a game for me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of like in baseball. It might not be sporting, but as a pitcher. It, the only real advantage you have is psychological in a lot of cases. So you kind of need to throw at the people every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. Just to um, let them know that one might be coming right for your ear every once in a while. It's not coming fast, but it might come right for your ear. So so be a little be a little nervous in that box. <laughs> the is it Matt Scherzer? Is that the guy that's like messing with batters with the pitch clock? Max, yeah. Max Scherzer? Yeah. Um, but I saw something they they like made a rule against it or what's what's his deal? He's um just trying to figure out different ways to make manipulate it to his advantage as they're trying to roll it out. Um and so one way is like he 
never leaves the rubber. He stays on the mound, so the clock immediately starts once he gets the ball back, and mm. which means that the batter has to hurry up and stay in the box because the batter doesn't has to be ready with eight seconds left on the clock, um, yeah. or the batter gets a gets a strike called against them. So he's forcing the batters to speed up even more than they're already having to think about because he's not even giving them that extra two seconds between pitches where the clock doesn't start. And then he, I saw something where he was also, um, like whenever the batter would get in position early on in the clock, he would just like stand there and right. not begin the pitch so that then the batter's like... Yeah, basically he's forcing them to be in the box because he could throw it because he's ready to go and the clock's going. But once the batter's in the box and the pitcher's on the rubber, then you're just, it's up to the pitcher to get into his motion and release the ball by the time the clock ends so he can just make the batter stand there for like 15 seconds with the bat on his shoulder and then wait till right as the clock is expiring to begin the pitch, which batters find annoying because they have like a rhythm. So they like to get in and like, it's like a one, two, three type of thing with the bat on their shoulder. Now we're ready for the pitch to be delivered. But if you make a batter stand there, you know, bats are, are heavy. Like if you're holding it up above your shoulder, you know, with just your wrist strength as you're waiting for the pitch and you're doing that. And now it's been 12 seconds. Now the bat's getting a little heavy in my hands. I'm not feeling as ready to go. And then you deliver the pitch when they're kind of like a little bit mentally and physically fatigued from waiting that extra long time. Um, It's an advantage to the pitcher. But, you know, it's also a thing where unless you're as good as executing as Max Scherzer can be, that could also be detrimental to the pitcher because you're putting yourself in a pressure situation of like, now I have to execute right now. And then if I don't, then the batter's just going to look at me like, wow, you played a bunch of middle games. You still threw it two feet out of the strike zone. I'm not swinging at that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It seems pretty interesting. Um, I haven't watched any baseball, of course, because it's baseball. And the. Well, do you didn't the watch the that- World Baseball Classic? I thought you would have at least no. watched some Japan dominate the United States two nights ago. I mean, I didn't even know when it was on. Like, I just saw it on It's been Twitter. on every night. Every night for the last two weeks. Just missed it. Don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, Your boy I, we, Shohei course, showed out, you know. Uh, yeah, he we did watched, it for you. We, we did watch uh, um, highlights and stuff. And then, of course, Japanese News is covering it. The, th- the main thing that uh, Japanese news was talking about was like the Newt Bar guy um, who is like from El Segundo. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what team he plays for, but he his mom's Japanese. So he played on the Japanese team. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was like their big story for most of it. And then, yeah, they're definitely hyped. So they were they were covering it yesterday or last night on the news. Uh, cause we watch Japanese news, of course. Um, and so that was pretty cool. That was interesting. I found it very strange that it was two LA guys that lost it for the U S like, <laughs> like the final two batters <laughs> play for LA teams. Um, uh, Hey, you know, Mike Trout did not have a chance in that at bat. <laughs> no, no. 
Shohei came yeah. by. He threw 100 miles an hour right down the middle twice, and Trout was so late on both of them. He had no chance. So that by the time Shohei threw that slider to end the game, like it was a strike even if Trout didn't swing at it. But he there was... It was just hilarious. Like Mike Trout had zero chance. He might as well have not swung or brought a bat at all to the at bat. It didn't even matter. It was uh, an interesting stat that you can correct it if you know. Uh, but I saw that Mike Trout has only twenty four times in his over six thousand and two hundred plate appearances has uh, three swinging strikeouts. Only 24 times. Oh, where he swung uh, and missed at all three strikes. Yeah, which is... Uh, yeah, I was pretty surprised that he didn't even foul one off. Mm. Well, and um, that that could be part of his plate approach because usually he's... Um, he either attacks strikes very early in the account or he will wait and wait and wait until he gets his pitch. Um, so... It's, pro- it's probably not been very often where he missed the first strike that was a fastball right down the middle and swung through it and was like, damn, now this at-bat's still going. <laughs> yeah. You know, that doesn't happen very often. Um, but And that, that was the other interesting thing is, like, in uh, Mike Trout's, like, weakness that MLB teams have, like, attacked him has been up and in, like, at his hands um, with fastballs. That's the one that you get him out with if that's that's your strike three pitch to try to get him out with because he might be leaning out over the plate and you can jam him before he can get his hands around. Um, but Shohei didn't try any of that. He just threw fastballs kind of away and down the middle and then a slider away. <laughs> they never even went into his, like, uh, the, the one spot where he has a little bit trouble getting to the pitch. They didn't even have to manipulate his weakness. Is that just because Shohei is such a good pitcher? Or, I mean, I know that he came out as the reliever. Yeah, yeah. Right? Well, and that was the other or thing. Closer. With, with Shohei coming out for just one inning, it wasn't like he was geared up to throw 110 pitches and having to like pace himself. That's why he came out throwing 101, yeah. 100. He threw like six pitches in the triple digits just in that inning. He was just all gas. And like, that was the sliders too. They're not the sort of, uh, just keep keep the game going type of breaking pitches where you're just giving him a different look. He's ripping that slider with more torque and more spin than the fastball has. Even though the slider's only going 87 and breaking, the actual stress to throw that pitch is even more violent than the fastball that's going 100 miles an hour to make it do that, to make it dive like that and break basically 18 inches across the plate. Um, that's just incredible incredible stuff that you can think only machines could really be able to pull that off yeah it's (laughs) i heard his voice for the first time too and (laughs) um like looking at his face he looks kind of like a middle schooler like he looks very young and just hearing his voice that was also quite young sounding was just like yeah he looks like a, a very tall kid in a in a trench coat you know, <laughs> three kids. In a tr- yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah. he's fluent in English, kind of like uh, Itro is and you Darvish is, but he always speaks through his interpreter. Um, yeah. And I would be interested from like Miho or even you who can understand the language better when when the interpreter is like relaying the question from the analyst to Shohei. 
I want to know if the interpreter is really giving him the question or Shohei knows the question because he heard the announcer say it and he understands English and his interpreter is like doing some inside jokes with him <laughs> in between. And then like Shohei will answer and he'll like answer, you know, bringing up like other at least in the translated answer, the translators say, oh, yeah, you know, he always looked up to Ken Griffey Jr. when he was growing up and stuff like that. But in Shohei's answer, when he's speaking in Japanese, he never says Ken Griffey Jr. in the response. So I don't know if Shohei's doing bits and then the translator's just always like giving a real generic baseball friendly answer. I, I don't know how, how how precise the translation is game is on that type of That's- stuff. That's a good question. He the thing is he may be saying something like Ken Griffey Jr. Uh he cuz he wouldn't say the word junior. Um because it would be there's a Japanese word for junior, so he would say that most likely. Um and Japanese is pronounced very quickly. So even hearing like regular English words mm-hmm. or names or whatever like it's hard for me to pick up on and I've been living around it for however many years. Um, definitely not fluent or anything. Uh, but the Miho, I haven't asked her <laughs> if, uh, the interpreter is doing bits. My suspicion based off of knowing how much Miho has translated before, cause I've been around her when she's been translating for her parents or translating for, um, some other people and stuff. Mm-hmm. There's, not really time to think of anything other than just relaying exactly what is said. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't think he's doing bits. So I, unless they kind of get some of the questions beforehand, I'm sure the interpreter, if you're an interpreter for this kind of thing, you have these like anecdotes. Yeah. You know, the generic baseball answer for everything. Right. So uh, perhaps he's just like drawing on other knowledge that he knows like Otani uh, likes. And Otani may have also just said like, oh, you know, I've looked up to plenty of different people. Um, and the person knows that like Ken Griffey Jr. is a top sitting one. On at, the, so. Sitting on the set with all the other analysts who are asking him questions. So he's like, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr., the guy sitting right there. He looked up to you all the time. <laughs> right, right, right. And But the other thing, too, is um, the interpreter most of the time in what I've seen is trying to just like get to the next question. So even if uh, Otani had said, like, I've looked up to a bunch of different baseball players, if he says that, very sure the next question is going to be like who who right 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 so the interpreters doesn't want to then be like who okay (laughs) and then say you know like uh so it's well and you can tell you can tell at least when the interpreter is going through giving shohei's answer that it's you know obviously it's not a one-to-one translation anytime where he's like having to like think about okay this is the context of the phrase or of the answer. So I'm going to figure out how to relay that in like some like colloquial English that uh, everyone will understand. Yeah, it's it's definitely like getting the context because Shohei, especially having one that being who he seems to be like a very nice 
a polite person. He says he's a being, country boy. So I guess he's from like the roping and rodeo area of Japan. He didn't grow up in <laughs> yeah. the city. Yeah, I actually don't know where he's from. Uh, but I don't, again, I don't really follow like baseball players too much, but I can look it up. Uh, but he, he's going to be really polite and he's going to be really, really polite speaking on TV with all of those people, former players and analysts or whoever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure the translator's not translating every single time he says like, it's such an honor. It's so nice to be here with you. Like that kind of stuff. Uh, which I'm sure is like peppered in throughout his entire answer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because then that's just going to be played on Japanese TV, you know? And uh, not that he's doing it for the cameras, most likely, but that's just kind of how somebody who is Japanese um, would speak Japanese in that sort of situation, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and well, I guess over in Japan, they're not carrying the uh, FS1 broadcast with... Alex Rodriguez and all of those guys on it. They're carrying the the Japanese analyst, and he's having to do the post game interview with both tables, the English broadcast crew and the Japanese broadcast crew. Yeah, I don't know where. Um, oh man, yeah, Shohei's from like a part of Japan that's just the middle, like no ocean. <laughs> Very hard to do on Japan to not be near an ocean. He's he's on the one piece of farmland <laughs> just hanging out. Yeah. Wow, this is... Uh, I'm going to look at that on Google Street View later. Um, I forgot what you were saying. Sorry, I was busy Googling. No, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. <clears throat> so... Uh, you, d- you didn't follow the World Baseball Classic, and then that's what I thought we were going to talk about the whole show. So <laughs> right. what what other things did you come, did you do this week? I've <laughs> uh, been busy. <laughs> yeah, the, the painting has been busy. Um, that's been good. I'm going today again to start painting with the actual picture. Um, I got some chalk. Because there's a few different ways I want to do it, and I'm not exactly sure how I want to go about it. I have a projector, so what I'm what I've done is I I do what I always do. I like kind of make an image on Photoshop or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I put the grid on it, and before I made stencils out of like the rosin paper that you use as like to lay down so you don't drip paint on Mm -hmm. everything. Yeah. And that took forever for the last ones. Yeah. Like drawing them out, cutting them. Cause it's, it's so large that it just like the time it takes to then draw another grid on top of that. Yeah. Especially if you're doing multiple layers, I can, it seems like it'd be pretty tedious. Yeah. And then lining up the layers because of the type of, I use like the plastic drop cloth for all of my paintings. So I can at least, just visually see the layer below oh, it. Oh yeah, now it's opaque. It <laughs> now it's opaque. So it was I needed to use the old method where you like kind of cut out a cross at at you know two different corners and then you line those up. Mm-hmm. And that's still kind of faulty, especially when you have a stencil that's got holes cut out of it. So the it could stretch you know, a little bends, bit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
So that took forever. And then using it as a stencil on the wall, it worked okay. But using it with like that type of paint, spray paint's going to go like right where you put it. And the border, it'll flare out a little bit, especially if it gets underneath. But like, you know, if I'm holding it down with my hands and spraying, it's going to be pretty flush with wherever mm-hmm. the stencil line is. But with house paint, it was real tricky getting the consistency of paint I needed on the brush because I don't want to have to paint it and then go back over it, which I ended up needing to do anyways. But if you put Um, too much, it's going to drip down behind the stencil. Not only did it drip down because the stencils are so big, by the time I finish and get back to the section that I've started with, the paint has sort of dried enough that it's peeled off a few layers Mm. of paper from that drop paper so then i got to just scrape that off or paint over it so much so that you can't tell there's paper underneath it yeah so that was it worked um but it was kind of a wash like it felt very uh tedious so i'm using a projector this time which is a very another very common method for stencils um or not stencils for for murals uh, but the thing is the rooms are so narrow that I can't get the whole picture on the wall. Oh, you can't get the projector far enough away. <clears throat> yeah. So I'm now I'm going to go in and I'm going to measure out the grid. So the grid I put on there, I know that one square is one foot by one foot okay. on like the size that I want it to be. So I'm going to use that grid with the projector to then tape off. I'm going to measure, like I'm going to zoom it in so that it's a one foot by one foot. Then I'm going to tape off all of the corners of the one feet so I can just line the grid up easily with the projector. But I'm going to need to be moving that around. Yeah, you're going to have to do a square at a time. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Could you you get like a... Uh, one of those laser level things that just sets up at least a a static line that's not moving so you know that you're not, you know, gathering an accidental slope edge or a right. weird warped edge in the corner or whatever where, where the projector kind of does a fisheye type of effect because you can't get it all the image flat against the wall. You know, that's the good thing about the stuff. <laughs> that I've made there's no straight lines really okay. so so that doesn't matter so you're and not worried about it looking all skewed because you've got it doesn't frame up yeah and that's kind of what the chalk is for so I'm trying I'm today's going to be an experimentation day and the restaurant's closed until the fifth so I got I got another you know week and a half to work this out but it's going to be one of those things where I'm like do I do I use the projector and do I just then use that to kind of trace everything with chalk so that then I can be like, okay, I'll just fill this in with color, mm-hmm. but I can then see what the whole thing looks like and make sure that it, cause that's the other difficult part about this is like, it's in a room. So I don't want it to be overbearing. Like that was kind of the thing that I was going back and forth with the owner on. Cause he was like, Oh, can you kind of do like a scene? I'm like, yeah, but you gotta, you really need negative space. You can't have too much color. Mm-hmm. And, and if it's a small room where on. people can't step away from it to kind of see right. 
see the comprehensive makeup of it, it's going to be hard to really depict a scene where people are too close to it to tell what's going on. Yeah, yeah. So I think I've found a happy medium with it. And, you know, ultimately, if he likes it, then that's that's good. I, of course, want it to be something that I'm proud of, but I've already designed something that I'm proud of. So I think it'll look okay. Um, but I also, it's it's like kind of terrifying being like, is this even going to look good on the wall? Like even the base layer color I got, because the room, the like wallpaper stuff, there's, it's, I posted like some videos of it on my Instagram, but the wall that I'm painting was like kind of a beige tan, mm-hmm. kind of khaki color. Then there's like a wooden, I don't even know what you would call that, but a wooden like not baseboard thing, but it's molding like at, yeah, molding at about six and a half feet. Then there's another foot and a half of okay. wall above that, but that's a different texture. And, what are they? And they it's like a darker brown, like in a house when they usually that's like down more like at the at like hip level on the wall. You know, if they use it to separate the wall into like a top part yeah, or a bottom yeah, yeah. wall. What are they? Wayne's coating? Maybe no, that's not right. I I I but, used to know these words. And it's something so like your chairs don't bang into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know exactly why in in Japanese construction it exists. I've seen it used as, I don't know what you would call that, but a thing that you you can hang hangers on. Okay. So I've seen people use it that way. My in-laws have used it that way. I've also seen it like in Miho's grandparents' house. Um, And maybe this is what it's, mostly used for people would put like a picture frame kind of on it Mm -hmm. but then hang the picture from like a wire to the nail in the wall so that it's then tilting a little bit down. oh leaning down so it's it's easier you can see the whole picture without having to get up to the same level as the picture yeah yeah it's not flat against the wall it's kind of like leaned at an angle like those old (laughs) like those old uh, two-way mirrors and Albertsons used to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Where the, the upstairs where, where, yeah, where the manager would sit and look down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, which always seems so oppressive to me. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so that top part I'm not painting, but the color I was even worried about because I didn't want to get the same tan that the wall already was because I needed to be lighter. But I've got to paint the base layer because one like we were talking about we don't know how well the paint's going to go on that thing how many coats i'm going to need to do of certain colors uh but two more importantly if you don't know the exact color of the base layer fixing mistakes is impossible Mm -hmm. (laughs) you cannot go back over it and like erase something uh so it was i was like freaking out because then i i like got the paint the other day and then you know they mix it for you at the paint desk and uh they do that you know that cool shaker shaker thing that looks like it's a microwave but for paint yes um and then i looked around the rim of i guess where maybe some of the pigment had kind of shaken out or something during the shaking pro i don't know exactly what it was and it was like yellow and I was like, oh, no, did mm-hmm. I get like a mm-hmm. like just some kind of stoplight color? Like, I don't know. 
Um, obviously, like I knew it was the color that I wanted. I had picked at least, but I didn't know it was so yellow based. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. So then I was just worried it wasn't going to work in the room. It ended up working fine, but yeah, it's one of those things. So that's that's my week. That's why I couldn't watch baseball. Is this one going to be the one with the uh, raccoon bears? No, we uh, that was one of the original mural designs that we decided to not do. The restaurant's actually changing name. Mm. So thank goodness I didn't do uh, the Tanukis. Yeah. That would have been out of place. Um, it The restaurant was called uh, Tanuki no Sato, which means like a Tanuki village, village of Tanukis. Um, it's now going to be Akatsuki, which is like dawn okay sort of um and he's changing the theme of it a bit it's it was udon which is like the a thicker noodle soup kind of stuff um which is very good he's still going to do that for lunch but for dinner he's changing it to an izakaya which is like a drinking establishment small like japanese tapas okay 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 um which is like my favorite type of restaurant. Is it the kind where stuff. is it the kind where you'll have like a bunch of the different options that you can just pull from like a tray or is it still like made to order? Uh, it's still made to order. Yeah, it's not like a dim sum. It's more you have just a menu of a bunch of different small plates, definitely shared stuff. Mm-hmm. And you you just order plate by plate. And it's, you know, cheaper obviously. The the plates are not going to be expensive. Um, izakaya, it's kind of interesting because it's one of those things that like izakayas are a drinking place. Like you, there's my ruler. I've been looking for this ruler for like two weeks <laughs> under a piece of paper. Um, it's, you order all these small plates and then like, uh, most people in Japan don't just drink like, like bars aren't a thing in the same way where you go there to just drink Mm -hmm. most people uh almost like need something to eat while they're drinking yeah um even if it's just kind of well we got this bowl of peanuts at the bar yeah yeah exactly eat this bowl of peanuts (laughs) boiled peanuts (laughs) um so it's a drinking place where you eat but it's also typically like family friendly because it's so much more of a loose restaurant, people feel more comfortable taking their small kids there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, he's making it where it's kind of that style where it's like affordable, like families can come, but you can also stay there and drink way more and all that kind of stuff. I'll take you. You better. You better. And those murals still better be up. They better not have painted over them. Yeah, yeah. I'm worried <laughs> about the the wallpaper stuff just because, you know, now it's so easy to tear down. But maybe somebody will peel it down like a Banksy and uh, yeah, 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 and auction it off for three hundred. See, you should have uh, you should have painted something. You should have taken all the wallpaper off, painted like a mm-hmm. cool secret mural, then put mm-hmm. wallpaper up over the top of that then painted the mural for the business. So then when they take it off, they find your secret mural that no one ever discovered. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like a, a Goya mm-hmm. style where he was painting in his house and slowly losing his mind, slow, quickly <laughs> losing his mind. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but so I'm going to go do that. Um, and I'm, hopefully my back doesn't seize up today. Yeah. Uh, I did. I only had my a, one back problem last week and it didn't come back. So you were able to play fine. Yeah. I, I, I prayed it away. So, you know, well, God's on my side. It wasn't just you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and prayers going up in California too. <laughs> How was the show? How was Denton? It was Is excellent. Denton still Denton? Denton. They still have the segregated water fountains and <laughs> the tree that they would lynch people. Well, on. Denton Denton has like the cool thing where uh, a few months ago they decriminalized uh, marijuana as a city, mm-hmm. but then the cops were like, "Yeah, but what if we still arrest people for that?" That's great. And they're like, well, we're not going to prosecute it. And they're like, yeah, but we could still handcuff people and like ruin their night, right? And they're like, I guess we're not going to do the paperwork. <laughs> and then the sheriff was like, oh, don't worry, local cops. The sheriff's department's got your back on this. We'll arrest them with you too. Don't worry. It's all going to be fine. We're going to throw these punks in jail. Uh, so you still got that. Um, they still hate trans people. So you got that too. Uh, Sick. <clears throat> but... No, Denton, Denton still, still Denton. Um, the show was amazing. Harvest House is incredible. Best, most professional sound crew that I've ever played with uh, or shared a stage with or anything like that. Sounded amazing on stage. All of our stage mix was awesome. The sound guys are walking around with little iPads, you know, and they're individually mixing your monitor mix for everyone's monitor on stage while they're standing on stage next to you going, so a little more kick? okay and then they just like you know pull that fader <laughs> up just a little bit you know it was very very cool um ton of people showed up even though it was like 34 degrees um they had like fire pits and heaters and hot drinks and stuff to keep everyone going um <clears throat> which playing in the cold does present like a few fun things that you have to deal with as a musician like your shit doesn't stay in tune hardly at all um and like in between sets, you know, I'd come back to my guitar and get it back out of the case and the entire neck would like feel like an icicle. So I'd have to like oh, take my take my sweater and like rub rub up and down on the neck like I'm jerking it off, you know, to warm it up. <laughs> <clears throat> and, uh, you know, then also like in the cold, you just cramp up like you cramp up a lot easier. Oh yeah. Um, so like I had a I had a pretty wicked uh, like toe cramp in my left big toe that happened about midway through the first set and i was just trying to kick everything on the ground and stuff to try to get it out never really went away (laughs) so i was just fighting it the whole time uh your fingers cramp up a little bit but i was able to fight through that christina experienced that for the first time fingers cramping up trying to play guitar so that was fun um but yeah it was uh it was an excellent show um it's gonna be real fun when we go back uh, next month in April and open for different strokes on the 21st our best good buddies the different strokes <clears throat> they they were around they played a lot for before the pandemic they're around for like five years and then after during the pandemic their lead singer moved to Hawaii oh so he's coming back for like a two-month visit and they're playing a bunch of shows so it's going to be really cool <clears throat> really cool to see him well, again awesome. it's been a long time because his name's Brett and he and I played and played shows together and knew a lot of the same people going back to like high school days. Um, uh, so we've known each other a really long time. 
weirdly have like cross-pollinated relationships with people that we were kids with in church, you know, but never like actually knew each other as kids, but we knew all the, had all the same friends type of thing. Um, so it's just, and then you were just finally strange. introduced to each other and yeah, just, yeah. And we're like, you know, Oh, Hey, yeah, yeah. I guess high noon looking each other up and down. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then, uh, you know, other than that, I just been, uh, you know, really, uh, grinding down on the screws on this latest IPCC report. Do you see this, Eric? Do you see this new report by the IPCC? <laughs> you hear about this, Eric? I did see, uh, and then I just said, of course, uh, and uh, then I, I convinced myself that nothing's going to be done about it, and uh, went about my day. <laughs> How about you? So, I, I came about this weirdly. Well, not weirdly, I guess, but Apple TV Plus, Apple Plus, Apple TV Plus, whatever their thing where they put their original content out, you know, like Ted Lasso and all their shows. Yeah. They have I've a new... More- they got a new I've show. I've been learning about awareness of mental health, speaking of Ted Lasso. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't know about that. We'll talk about it after. M- mental health expert, Jason Sudeikis. Um, they they have a new show called Extrapolations. I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's basically no. every episode of the show is like, like another seven years in the future. So like the first one's okay. like 2030. And then the next one's, you know, or the next one jumps 15 years and it's like 2045. And then the next one jumps seven years and it's like 2052. But it is based on sort of uh, what happens after this last IMPCC report. <laughs> As we extrapolate out how capitalism is just going to keep going. So what's really going to happen? Like, uh, no one's really going to do anything. <laughs> and it, to, to where like, you know... Whatever it was, the Paris Accords, you know, back five years ago, where everyone's like, "We're going to stop this shit at 1.5 degrees. We're going to make all these pledges to do all this stuff to stop it at 1.5 degrees Celsius." That's where we're drawing the line. Where William Barrett Travis drawing the line in the sand at the Alamo, saying, "Not over 1.5, over my dead body." Well, it's definitely going to be over your dead body because it's not happening. Um, and to, to, to the point where even with the reductions that were made and even with like the fluke uh, that COVID sort of caused a little bit of a downturn in emissions because people weren't traveling as much and stuff like that, um, we're still on pace for like 2.8. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> in, thing- increasing by the end of the century. So it's not good. Not good, guys. The only thing that I, the only good news I've ever seen is uh, that people think enough has been done and enough will be done that we won't have a runaway greenhouse effect like Venus. Um, but, uh, oh yeah, there's still get there. there well, I mean, there is the the option where uh, we just go extinct because we've made the planet uninhabitable and then the planet goes through another long multi-millennia phase of healing itself and then eventually certain plant and new animal life re-emerges and it's maybe it's dinosaurs again or something <laughs> like yeah yeah you know maybe the the extra carbon dioxide content causes giant plants and giant creatures to grow again and they evolve over another 150 million years and then maybe we get back to like some sort of sentient human life later on. 
you know it's amphibian's turn right we've already had uh the top predators be insects um top predators be lizards top predators be mammals i don't think the amphibians have ever done it so uh, yeah, you know, yeah, probably because they have to be covered in water at all times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> but, I guess, uh, I guess it depends on how loose you define amphibian. Uh, I think there's pretty strict definitions, <laughs> <laughs> but I could be wrong. <laughs> um, so the uh, so like the this show extrapolations, it's not that great of a show. I mean, Meryl Streep's in it and part of it, and. She's overacting like the insane overactor she is. Um, but they parts of it are, you know, the things that people don't really talk about because most of the time when we talk about like these IPCC reports um, or like what happened in la- last year's meeting in November, um, the uh, people talk about it more in the in human scale terms like oh man this is going to cause a lot of displacement this is going to cause a lot of uh, more famine and hunger but also extreme weather in some areas it's going to drive people out of their homes you're going to have a lot of migration you're going to have a lot of people that are demanding to be led into america or into the eu and then the eu and america are going to be like no, and <laughs> we're going to kill all those people at our borders because we don't want to share the resources because even though those people don't have clean water anymore, we're going to keep the clean water for ourselves. Those are the types of things people talk about a lot. And and of course, just talk about it getting hot. Like, oh man, it's going to be really hot. Like India, you know, is already experiencing over 20 uh, lethally hot days a year and that's just going to keep increasing over time and that's going to be more popping up all over the world where you have just long periods of summer or certain seasons where you have extremely high temperatures where it's too hot to even like go outside for 15 minutes um, so those are the kind of terms that people always think about it in and I feel like one of the things that a lot of people don't always immediately gravitate to is the ex- mass extinctions of animals <laughs> that is yeah. going to happen and we're already there like as far as seeing a bunch of things wipe out but it's not going to take too much more warming of the oceans to basically kill off most marine life um and we're the the thing that's going to go first is going to be the tiny stuff the plankton the little single cell things that plants and tiny fishes rely on but even like you know humpback whales rely on huge amounts of like plankton and tiny fish that's what they eat they're not out there eating you know giant sharks and stuff they they don't even have teeth for that (laughs) so they're eating krill like tons of krill every day you have to maintain their body mass and once the plankton and krill go away everything else goes like that's it the whole ocean's going to be done as far as like major marine life um and so there is a, there's an interesting part of the the show where they talk about this cuz they're like uh at 2045 and they're chasing like the last couple humpback whales that are in the ocean <clears throat> because the ocean has now reached like an average fahrenheit temperature of 90 degrees so there's really nowhere to mate the breeding grounds are gone the the food table has collapsed inside of the ocean so especially large marine life is is all gone 
Um, and the, the promise is like, uh, technology. Well, with technology, we'll be able to like synthesize the genome of all these animals and Jurassic Park, you know, maybe they'll all go extinct, but maybe in a few years we'll have the technology to bring them back to life once we've figured out this climate problem <laughs> type of thing. Um, but you have like the, the bigger, there, there's also the sort of the bigger considerations of we don't know how to communicate with a lot of marine life, but we do know that whales and dolphins and octopuses and squids and other things have incredibly active brain lives and brain activity on par with ours, on par with our level of con neuro connections. Um, so to think that they're not having some like outsized emotional suffering as a result of this is also sort of a, assuming that there's some sort of a lower life form than, than they are. Um, and to think that you would have the technology to try to bring them back or the technology to try to using capitalist technology, technological ideas that would try to stop the climate crisis. Um, you would also think that maybe there's some way, uh, in the future of trying to at least communicate with them. I don't know. So the show does a little bit of like, oh, maybe they did figure out a little bit of communication capabilities of some of these animals in, in the not-too-distant future, and they're finding out, oh, yeah, it really sucks for them right now. <laughs> We're starting to get like, oh, wow. Oh, now that we can kind of hear them talk a little bit, they're not having a good time. <laughs> they're really not having a good time. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, I mean, I've yet to see Avatar 2, uh, but... Uh... Sounds like you're just describing that. Um, it's pretty wild that the, like, it, it was so, <laughs> obviously the system's not going to allow for drastic, drastic change, but back when they were claiming to care about reducing it uh, or maintaining to only 1.5 C, which is still an increase of temperature like yeah from from now yeah they they have like never considered what if we don't have it increase any <laughs> what if we bring it uh to where it was in you know uh the 60s or whatever it's we'll limit it to 1.5 c whenever they decided that they were just kind of like and Five o'clock, time for us to go home. Uh, <laughs> next year, we'll come back and see what uh, what progress has been made. Like, it was such a kind of, yeah, they'll figure that out eventually. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the system isn't going to allow that. Like, the, the blip that we saw in emissions from COVID, we spoke about it at the time, uh, but it's it, it didn't even decrease the total. It was a, a blip in emissions it did not decrease the overall emissions mm. that year emissions still increased it was just not at the acceleration that it was the year prior um yeah like we they so need it's, there needs to be a decrease of almost 60 percent of emissions like today in order to get to 1.5 in by 2100 um, and the amount of like actual decrease has been less than 1% since like the Paris Accord. So 
I that it seems like an impossible ask. <laughs> but for yeah. just for for example, for like the real numbers that this report shows, um, and they they did a couple cool things by sort of scaling this by human experience, by kind of based on when you were born to let you know like what you're experiencing and what you should plan to experience. So like right now, as of today, since the industrialization started, so you'd say since the mid-1800s, we are at 1.1 degrees Celsius increase in temperature, in global temperature since then. So we're on our way to 1.5 real fast. Um, that's 2 degrees Fahrenheit, 1.1 degrees Celsius, about exactly 2 degrees Fahrenheit. Um the interesting thing they did in this report was instead of just putting out in raw numbers, they put some very uh, useful graphics together mixed with like some other artists to help like represent this in terms that would be a way that other people could understand rather than just being like a line graph, you know, or plotting it on a on a graph type of thing, because sometimes that it's not very intuitive for people to get. So one of the representations they did was said, you know, let's say a person that was born in 1950. So like our parents, um, they were born into a world where there was only 0.25 degrees of warming compared to the late 1800s. Um, so today, as a 70 year old, cumulatively, they've experienced 0.85 degrees of warming in their lifetime. So that's about 1.12 degrees per decade. Um, of course that's not a continual, it's actually an increase over time. So it doesn't exactly average out to 1.12 per decade. Like the early decades have less of an increase than the later ones do. Cause this is increasing over time. But if you want to just look at the average breakdown for a person who was born in the 1950s and now they're reaching 70 years old, they've experienced 0.85 degrees of warming in their lifetime for us, people that were born in the eighties. Well, not you, you're 90. So. This doesn't exactly. apply to you, Eric, but for for people like me, born in the '80s, um, when we were born, we had already experienced 0.4 degrees of Celsius on our birth date. So, 0.4 degrees of Celsius warming had already happened since pre-industrial times. <clears throat> we have experienced now that we're 40 years old, we've experienced an additional 0.75 degrees warming in our lifetime. So that's almost 0.2 degrees per decade during our four decades on the planet. Um, so the rate of warming over that time is 50% faster for us born in 1980 than it is for the people born in 1950. So you can start to see how this is sort of like an exponential growth curve. Um, but they're all retired and they're not in control of like the <laughs> right, right. The hot, they're, they're, they're about to experience the hottest day of their life because they're about to die. So we don't even really have to worry about them. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> now, this is the interesting thing for a person born in 2020, the extent of warming highly depends on like what we do going forward because they're basically sitting here already at 1.1. And if we saw in my lifetime so far, we saw it go from 0.4 to 0.7 to <clears throat> 0.75. 0.1 um, to 1.1 to 1.5 is going to be a very short time frame for them. If if we just maintain current trends and do nothing, um, you're going to be reaching that by the 
end of the 2020s or the 20 early 2030s. Um, so limiting it to 1.5 degrees without radical change across the whole globe is pretty unlikely. So now we start to just move the goalposts and be like, oh, well, what if we just decide now two degrees is like the real one that we want to keep it under because two degrees <laughs> would be really bad. Um, well, we're still on pace right now by 2100 to be at 2.8 degrees above. So we're way, we're blowing past two right now. Um, that's sort of the scary thing is, and in the show, that's kind of the thing they talk about. Like by the, by the big climate meeting in 2045, everyone has just like tries to agree with a bunch of uh, technological, technological titans of industry who want to like come up with a lot of new inventions to uh, to curb the to curb climate change? Um, they get them to agree to not get it above two, but really the ceiling's two point three. And then like the next time they have the meeting, it's like we're going to try to keep it under three degrees. <laughs> yeah. So the goalpost just keeps moving, which is basically what's happened. Like five years ago, everyone was like one point five, and now this meeting is like we'll be lucky if we keep it under two. Um, and that's if there need, there's tons of drastic changes across the whole globe with a bunch of nations doing a lot of things to hold up their climate commitments and reducing their, their burdens of emissions. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, major businesses and things like that, because even governments can't necessarily, um, force global interests to completely stop, even if they have the entire, like, united nations body behind them trying to do enforcement um so it is going to come down to like actual corporations doing stuff um (laughs) unless unless we get so desperate that we're ready to you know throw those people in prison for not enacting their climate goals that would be the other way to dealing with it the other thing that this showed was that um the uh, thing, the the major burn factor on emissions right now that is going to doom us is that people making over a million dollars all across the world, millionaires around the world, which includes billionaires and will eventually include trillionaires, they are going to eat up over 70% of the emissions budget in the next 15 years. That would have kept us under 1.5C. So... Do we decide that that is a crime? Do we decide that there is some has to be some sort of equitable distribution similar to not just uh, economic wealth, but in when it comes to carbon and emission wealth? Like, do you have the right to emit more because you have more money? And is that going to be a thing that holds up in court? Um, is it going to be a thing that gets contested and people eventually start to get punished for emitting um, over and above the resources that they have? Um, because that is addressing that inequality will be a primary way to try to hold this under two degrees. And I don't know. That's that's where I've kind of am at the point of like. I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> like, yeah. We're not going to throw there's there's no way where a bunch of uh, millionaires and billionaires are going to agree to a system that holds them in check at the penalty of prison for uh, their emissions. 
I just don't think that's going to happen. So no, that's why I was telling you, um, it's no longer about conservation, guys. We should just be burning as much as we can because this is the last lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> you people that had kids, I'm sorry. This is the last lifetime. <laughs> I'm sorry those kids are going to have to grow up where they can't breathe for most of the rest of their life. Um, just start enjoying this as the last lifetime. It's pretty insane that the, like, as I was saying too, the the temperature change, um, saying, you know, 1.5 is all we're going to let it get to initially, is still warming up so much that the the average or the annual hottest day temperature change at that point was still going to be, you know, like two degrees Celsius warmer in large chunks of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the 1.5 degree increase in temperature was going to mean that the wettest day, uh, precipitation change for, like the Caribbean, um, the Northwest Africa, uh, parts of Chile, South Africa, parts of Australia was going to be negative um, 20%. So the wettest day was going to decrease in the amount of rainfall they were going to see in those regions mm-hmm. um, at 1.5 degrees. Uh, and then that's, of course, not even counting for the increase in precipitation was going to be above 40 percent for uh, i guess the saharan region mm-hmm. uh, which you know deserts are not meant to accumulate <laughs> water uh, <laughs> and apparently neither uh, they're not supposed to accumulate a ton of snowpack over a short amount of time either <laughs> yeah 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 um and then the current pace that we're at, like you're seeing the entire Midwest and whatever you would call that in Canada, um, you're seeing the uh, average hottest, annual hottest day, sorry, I keep screwing that up, being increased over like five degrees Celsius. And mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, that's like what, nine-ish degrees Fahrenheit? Yeah. Um, like. That's that's of course just the annual hottest day, but as we all know, that's going to be buffered <laughs> on each side uh, by days that are only you know eight degrees above normal. Um, so it's one of those things where the it's it's definitely going to cause a lot of problems for humans, but it's really gonna and and. Well, and all your all your fire cycles are going to increase. That's fire other, cycles are going to fire increase. cycles are going to, and you're just going to have fire seasons all over the world that are going all the time. It's just going to be massive fire seasons all the time. Yeah, maybe that'll block out the sun. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the the problem with all of these things occurring too is like they're of course estimating that uh, this is going to increase. Um, natural disasters this is going to increase uh migration and everything but i don't necessarily think that they're including that in their models of like like this one here the heat humidity risks to human health it shows you at these different ranges of increase in temperatures 
where in the world it's going to be dangerous. It's going to be 365 days a year uh, that you have it too hot to live in most of like Polynesia. Mm -hmm. Um, Or at the, it's going to be like half of the year in Southern California and Florida, the entire East Coast. Along the coast, it's going to be too hot and humid for people to live. Yeah. Um, And they're not including in these things stuff that we know about, like, uh, you know, the fault line in the Pacific Northwest that's going <laughs> right. to cause well, probably right, which the, not a climate not a climate disaster, but certainly ones that that are just waiting to happen. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's not including the Yellowstone supervolcano. It's not including all of these other disasters that are not directly related with the climate. Like we saw during COVID, um, we had one job <laughs> to do as a society. And, uh, because of the way that money can control, uh, narratives, it got splintered so fast. Uh, now imagine you have a continual catastrophe of climate being too hot to survive mixed with crop failures, mixed with, you can't fish anymore, Mm -hmm. mixed with, uh, increases in migration mixed with, uh, major tornado. Uh, earthquake hurricane um these things that are tangentially related but it's not like they're saying well an increase in hurricanes is going to mean that um you're going to have an increase in hurricanes no there's a downstream effect of hurricanes and that's the part that is oh yeah you can't model for but if you have the entire east coast of the u.s slammed by a major hurricane that's a category five or six because things have become so extreme at this point. Um, Where are they going? Like that's millions of people who are going to go where exactly? Like the farther inland states are not going to be too happy uh, with people coming to them, especially because those are, coastal liberal elites oh right <laughs> moving into my appalachia oh that and that's exactly where you find out that you know which which progressive people are really nimbies you know in in the most yeah, in the most well, truest sense <laughs> <laughs> but the, the uh you know that that's the pessimistic way to look about it but you can also look at it in the optimistic way uh you know like greenland will melt and there's going to be a ton of natural resources that are just unearthed that have been buried by glaciers for millennia. You know, there's going to be just chunks of like gold and rare earth minerals that just are just now sitting on a new dry landscape that are no longer covered in hundreds of feet of ice. So you can just walk out and just pick up a piece of gold or pick up a diamond. They're just going to be right there. You could do them. That's going to be pretty cool. Um, the, the the Of course, there's the argument that you could have like a bunch of capitalistic technology save us because this is an opportunity to make a lot of money if you could come up with a good technology that actually saved this. But in the extrapolation of that, the I, my hunch is more that the money is going to come off of people doing a bunch of real estate speculating and getting the richest people to move to places where they w- will be the least affected. And building golf courses, you know, on Antarctica because now we can do that or whatever it is. Um, 
that's where the money is going to be made, much less probably in companies that are trying to actually decarbonize things with new technologies. Because you can make a quicker buck if you can convince a bunch of uh, rich people from Miami who can no longer have their mansions on the coastline to, you know, move up. Let's move up to uh, Quebec somewhere because it's fucking awesome and temperate now and look at this new rich people community we've developed where we can all live yeah but if you're Matt Iglesias you can look at that and say might as well purchase some land in Quebec right right get it get out ahead of it right (laughs) yeah it's pretty wild looking at this like risk of species loss map is (laughs) it's just terrifying that you have between at, at three degrees Celsius, you have between 80 to 100% of species loss in the Caribbean Gulf Coast mm-hmm. uh, region, Gulf of Mexico region. Um, 80 to 100% of species. Then you get up to four degrees and the entire equator is just 100% species loss. Yeah. Uh, it's wild. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, then you've got to... You know, humans will probably be around way longer into the uncomfortable years because we figured out how to live underground or other things because that was an easier thing to figure out than to just use the means at our disposal right now to stop producing (laughs) greenhouse emissions. We, We could totally do it. Like, it's totally capable. It's not like we can't do it. It is strictly one of those things that uh, of a won't do it type of decision right at this point. But, uh oh, you're beeping. Oh, running out of battery. All right. Wrap it up. Well, I've taken you too long anyway. Have fun doing your murals. I'll talk to you next week, Eric. Bye.